welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sunderland and Talking Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. Public debates and policy debates about immigration in most parts of the world are pursued on the assumption that states have the right to exclude immigrants if they so wish, perhaps with the exception sometimes of refugees. The main questions that are debated are how states can manage migration, who and how many immigrants a state should let in. But do states really have this right, morally, to exclude others from settling on their territory? In his new book, Do States Have the Right to Exclude Immigrants?, Christopher Bertram, who is Professor in Social and Political Philosophy at the University of Bristol, argues that in most cases states do not have such a right. Instead, Bertram suggests, migration should be governed globally and states should have to justify to a sort of global governance entity any restrictions that they want to place on movement. So in this episode, I started by asking Chris Bertram whether, given how entrenched the view is that states do have the right to control their borders, why he still thought it was an important question to ask and what the utility of asking that question is. But before letting Bertram answer, let me just apologise for some light banging noise in the background, mainly towards the end of this episode, which was caused by some renovating neighbours. It's true that states and um, ordinary people, their citizens, politicians and journalists simply assume that they have this right. But I think it's important for um, political philosophers uh, and for um, critical social theorists generally to question many of our assumptions, particularly when it's the case that many people have compelling reasons for wanting to cross borders and find new lives in new societies. Um, And given that they have those compelling reasons and interests, um, I think we we need to uh, ask whether the uh, assumptions that states and their defenders have about themselves are in fact justified. I suppose some people, um, just to um, stay on this question a little bit, uh, some people um, have approached um, the ethics of immigration by saying instead that, okay, there's nothing we can really do about the fact that states assume that they have this right to exclude. So we should um, just kind of grant them their, that right. And then we can discuss how to, what would be the most ethical immigration policies given that. And I suppose they would, so that's Joseph Karen's approach um, in in his last book. Um, and I think he sees, well, in half of this last book. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I suppose the idea there is that it's just maybe a bit more, you know, you can say a bit more uh, to states about what they should do right now. Or do you yes. think? Yeah. So, so I think, um, so I think, it, of course, when you're having a conversation with somebody um, about um, what policy should be um, and what you know, how we sh- how we should uh, deal with it matters to do with migration, refugees, and so on. You can have that. You can have that discussion conditional on certain assumptions. So you can say, like Karen's does, okay, let's grant that you've got this right. Well, surely that doesn't tell the whole story. You can say that, um, but it's only one of a series of interesting uh, approaches that one can have. 
Uh, and I think um, addressing things at the more fundamental level, asking whether that uh, right to exclude is itself justified is a, a perfectly legitimate question. Uh, I mean, in, in my book, I approach things both in a kind of ideal way and in a non-ideal way. That's to say, I look at, well, what would be the basis for a just global migration regime? And various people are interested in that question. But I also ask, well, given that we don't live uh, in a world governed by a just migration regime, what are the obligations on states and what are the obligations on individuals? And those are going to be different given that we don't um, live in a world that's subject to those ideal set of rules, uh, ideal set of rules. We live in the world that we actually live in. Um, but we need to think about, you know, there may be, you know, laws for and against certain practices, but we also need to think about what our attitudes to those laws ought to be, um, whether we should be pushing states to change those laws, um, whether we should think of ourselves as grudgingly accepting of those laws in practice, or whether we think that you know, we have reasons to comply with them. Yeah, and moving on to this, um, um, the approach of the book, which is this ideal and non-ideal, it's a philosophy book, but you start with um, quite an extensive descriptive chapter about historical and contemporary migration. And um, yeah, can you just say a bit why you thought it was important to, to start with this, even in a philosophy book? Well, I think it's important to start with it because both ordinary people and philosophers, and so this is a philosophy book which I hope will also be read by ordinary people, um, often share a set of assumptions about the way the world is organized, um, a set of assumptions that I think uh, are not um, particularly well grounded. So to give one example, perhaps an essential example in modern political philosophy, um, John Rawls, his picture of how the world is in terms of you know, its organization into states is essentially one in which we live in these more or less self-contained moral universes where we cooperate together. And then over time, questions of global justice get posed as these you know, more or less self-contained universes come into contact with one another um, start to trade, people start to move across borders and so on. Whereas actually the, the, the modern world of nation states, the world where people live in these containers of cooperation or assume to have nationalities that bind them to these particular um, institutional containers, that world um, actually isn't that old. Um, it, perhaps 200 years ago, the majority of human beings didn't live in that world. And many of the institutional structures that we take as normal, take for granted, like you know, passports, visas, documentation, all of that kind of stuff, is really, really new. So far from being the natural way the world's organized, um, it's, um, it, it's, it, it's a, uh, a human uh, invention of fairly recent origin 
Um, so we shouldn't start our theorizing by thinking about that as being the natural way things are. So those were assumptions in uh, political philosophy, but did you also feel like there were some assumptions in public debate in general that you wanted to challenge at the start of the book? One of the difficulties um, in discussing migration in the um, public sphere and in politics is that often people have you know, a lot of false beliefs about migration. So they think that the level of global migration is much higher than it is. They think of all global migration as being about poor people from Africa and other countries coming to wealthy countries. They adopt a, an economic model of migration so that people will you know, up sticks and move for, for um, you know, the, in order to get better salaries just like that. Um, so they, they buy into a very naive economic pool theory of migration. Um, whereas, in truth, the, the level of global migration has stayed fairly stable for, at least in percentage terms, for about the last hundred years. Um, a great deal of migration is um, migration within the global south rather than just south to north. Um, and desperate refugees and very poor people are only a small proportion, a minority of people who actually um, migrate across international borders. Most people uh, migrate for work reasons or they migrate for family reasons. So part of the problem and part of one of the reasons I wanted to get the factual stuff in at the beginning of the book was that people have these stereotypical ways of thinking about migration that aren't really borne out by the facts. And which may colour their moral thinking about these issues as well. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, because they think of their, you know, they think of their economies and their communities as being very much at risk from a more liberal migration regime, whereas that may be very far from the truth. Uh, yeah, and uh, I can just add what you started there about uh, hoping to reach a wider audience. I think it's a very um, accessible book. So um, I think uh, if anyone's listening who isn't a philosopher, they uh, they shouldn't be uh, deterred. <laughs> um, but uh, but moving on in the second chapter, then uh, you. Um, you move on to this ideal theorizing and you discuss four different migration regimes from an impartial perspective. Uh, so yeah. can you explain what this impartial perspective is and why you think it helps us think about justice in migration? Well, so, so when we um, impose laws on one another, we thereby limit one another's freedom. Okay, so... Uh, the, the law, um, the set of duties and rights that people typically have, say, within a state, um, is um, a limitation of people's freedom. But it's a limitation of people's freedom that uh, comes with a kind of quid pro quo. There's a certain reciprocity about it because we all do better living under a set of predictable laws, we all end up having more freedom if we um, resign ourselves to a regime, if we accept a regime where 
um, the same set of laws applies to everyone. So it's a regime of uh, reciprocal coercion, reciprocal limitations on freedom. We're not in a regime where um, people are just imposing their will, their view about how things should be on other people unilaterally. Uh, and that picture or something like it, you find it, say, in the social contract tradition, in political philosophy, it's part of the justification, or at least perhaps the best justification that can be offered for why people have reasons to respect and obey the laws. Basically, they're um, living under a set of laws that can be justifiable to all of them uh, as limitation, li limiting people's freedom in a reciprocal way. There's a problem though when it comes to migration and migration law. And the problem is that far from um, having that kind of reciprocity, um, that kind of rule that applies to everybody in the same way, or I, at least ideally does, we have a situation where a set of people, insiders, are imposing themselves on a set of outsiders, the people that they're subjecting to their migration law. Uh, and that's not a bargain from which those outsiders benefit. It's simply a unilateral imposition of will by insiders on outsiders. And that's really not something that those outsiders have a reason uh, to accept because where's the quid pro quo, where's the reciprocity for them? Yeah, so, um, um, so using this method, you then advocate um, the fourth regime that you discussed. So this is a regime that you think that migrants, as so outsiders in, and insiders, I suppose, um, would accept. Yeah. Uh, and this uh, is um, a kind of procedural, uh, global procedural regime where states give up quite a lot of uh, sovereignty over migration. So maybe if you just want to explain what exactly this uh, fourth regime is that you think would be um, accepted by everyone and why would you, uh, why would it would be the most just regime? Okay, so, so first I should say that um, as far as kind of details are concerned, I can't say exactly what would turn out to be uh, justifiable to everyone because um, I think a global just migration regime is one that in the end would have to be um, subject to a good deal of kind of practical uh, justification to actual people, uh, not just actual states, but also uh, migrants and their representatives themselves and other interest groups and what have you. So a lot of the detail of a just migration regime would have to be filled out by kind of real world argument and deliberation. Um, but roughly what I argue for in the book is a presumption in favor of freedom of movement, coupled with a recognition that sometimes, sometimes um, some restrictions on human mobility might be justified, but that states shouldn't be able to impose those restrictions unilaterally. Rather, the reasons that they give, or the reasons maybe other communities give, for restricting mobility uh, have to be reasons that are 
subject to some kind of impartial arbitration. And we could have various possible institutional structures for that. So, for example, if a state wants to say, sorry, we want to restrict inward migration to our country or maybe to some part of our country because that particular ecosystem there um, is really fragile and it can't bear more people, that shouldn't be something that they can just say and declare and that's an end of the matter. Rather, it's something that has to be evaluated um, by some procedure that takes into account both those ecological reasons uh, and also the interests of the migrants who are being excluded by that exclusionary regime. So in that, um, in that process, how do you envisage um, the kind of governance of this kind of regime? Like who, who would make such an evaluation? Okay, so I think we could have um, a, I mean, there are a series of institutional possibilities. Um, currently, we have um, some um, uh, institutional mechanisms in the area of migration, such as the Refugee Convention, um, but that isn't, you know, famously, that isn't um, subject to any kind of, of global court or anything like that. But other aspects of global governance, such as the global trade regime, there you have institutions like the WTO, for example, with its tribunals. Um, we can imagine as far as a, a climate regime is concerned, the setting up of similar kind of tri tribunals to enforce international agreements. So we have all kinds of mechanisms in place where we currently adjudicate those kinds of dispute. So I don't see a big problem with extending them to the topic of migration, at least not in principle. In practice, of course, I think states would be very reluctant to concede uh, a degree of sovereignty in the migration area. Um, but that's another story. I just pick up on what you said right at the start. You said that um, you can't say exactly how the regime is going to look because it has to be... Um, it has to be subject to an actual uh, deliberative process or something like that or, or negotiation, yeah, yeah. Uh, which um, which sounds um, right. <laughs> um, but I just wondered if you think that, you know, the the regime that you envisage uh, compared to someone that would be agreed in the actual world would, would be quite different because what, you, what you're discussing is people... Uh, is this kind of um, rules in original position where people don't actually know uh, all that much about themselves. Um, but, but of course, in the real world, they do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so so I, think, I, I think what we can do, we can use devices like the rules in original position, and I do in the book, the, the idea of a veil of ignorance. Uh, we can use them um, negatively, as it were. So we can use them to say that, look, you know, certain regimes are clearly not going to be justifiable from an impartial perspective um, because they're regimes that uh, result in such drastic costs for some people's basic interests that um, in a situation of genuine impartiality, nobody would agree to those regimes. So if, you, if there's a danger as there is with the current regime of state discretionary choice over migration, that you will be you know, trapped in 
extreme poverty with very poor life expectations. Um, perhaps you'll be trapped in a regime that you know, persecutes you. Perhaps you'll be uh, cut off from pursuing the career that you want to pursue. Um, perhaps um, you'll be cut off from your friends and family, never to see them again. All of those are kind of predictable consequences of the regime of state discretionary choice. So we can use the original position device negatively, as it were, to say, okay, regimes with those kinds of consequences for people are ones that they're not going to sign up to. Yeah, this is kind of similar, actually, to the um, um, the final two questions was, uh, that I was going to ask you, which is, um, you know, talking about how do we use this kind of ideal regime, um, given that we don't actually... Uh, live in an ideal world, and and you acknowledge this, and you discuss this uh, extensively in the in the final chapter. So um, yeah, maybe just move on to this final question I've got, which is that you discuss uh, several ways in which states and individuals should act, given that we live in non-ideal circumstances. So could yeah. you talk us through those recommendations, both for individuals and for states? Okay, so let me start with the with the states. So, um, so, 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 what I say is that, of course, states aren't obliged unilaterally to uh, act as if we had a fully just regime for the world in place. But I think they have kind of two um, two key duties, nonetheless. First of all, they have to try to work with other states to bring a more just regime into being. So they have to be genuinely committed to working with other states, just as they might be in, say, bringing into being a just trade regime. And second, I think they have to stop doing some of the more egregiously bad things um, that are characteristic of many current policies, and they have to uphold the just elements in the current regime. So, for example, um, a good example of this would be the Refugee Convention. So what states currently do um, is that they use visa restrictions, carrier sanctions, and so on, to basically undermine the effect, the purpose of the Refugee Convention, so that people can't in practice get sanctuary. And thereby, of course, they condemn people to really dangerous journeys, to drowning in the Mediterranean, to being separated um, from their kids at the Arizona border, um, that, that kind of thing. So I think they've got a duty to stop doing those nasty things, um, to um, uphold the just elements in the, in the current regime, um, and try to promote in cooperation with others a more just regime. Um, a fairer regime. Now, as far as individuals go, I think the, the, there's going to be a difference depending upon um, how their state is acting. So, states, um, where states are acting with um, great injustice, as for example, you know, we've seen the, 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 the recent pictures from the US border with Mexico, um, we know about the kinds of things that are happening in the Mediterranean. Where states act with great injustice, then I don't think individuals are uh, under any obligation, neither 
citizens nor migrants to comply with those unjust laws. Um, and indeed, when they act in ways that subvert them um, or go or are contrary to those those measures, often they act in a praiseworthy way. So uh, one recent example, been in the news, the French Constitutional Court found that Cédric Heroux, um, who has been assisting um, migrants on the Italian-French border, um, who was being prosecuted for um, that uh, act, humanitarian act of assistance by the French state, they found that actually uh, acting in accordance with that duty of solidarity was lawful. So that's you know, an example of the kind of praiseworthy cooperation. Um, where states are acting with um, greater justice, then perhaps people have a provisional obligation to comply with their laws. But most states are a long way short of that in the present, certainly most European and North American states. Um, but of course, it's often a matter of degree and there can be elements of justice within the current system of injustice. I should say, though, that um, as far as advice to individuals is concerned, I think there's, there's one thing to say that individuals um, are not obliged to obey, are not morally obliged to obey, um, but that's not to say that they should disobey, and the reason for that is essentially uh, reasons of prudence. States are incredibly powerful institutions, often incredibly vindictive institutions with long memories. So people are often you know, well advised to comply with immigration law, um, but that doesn't, that's not to say they do something morally wrong when they don't. To find out more about Chris Bertram and to find a link to get his book, Do States Have the Right to Exclude Immigrants? Please visit our website, talkingmigration.com. That was all for this time. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.